Hello and good evening. I'm Aaron Bastani. This evening, I have the immense pleasure of being joined on Navarra Live by the one and only Ash Sarka. Ash, how are we? I'm trending again, Aaron, and I do not like it. When are you not trending? It's either you or Paul Mason in my personalized feed of, <laughs> of trending. I, I like as well this whole white vibe you've got going on, Ash. You know, it's like uh, the white, what's it called? The white store where, you know, one of those places that literally everything's white. Everything in that room is white, including your top. Well, look, I am going to paint it this weekend because it's it's giving um, white cube gallery, you know, not into it. Yeah, I like the plant, a little flash of colour. Coming up on tonight's show, we'll be detailing Peter Mandelson's close relationship to the world's most famous paedophile and whether children are starting to identify as all manner of objects, including a, quote, gay male hologram. That's what one self-identified teacher claims anyway. First story. The Bank of England has raised interest rates again. It's the 13th time in a row that the bank has put the base rates up, this time lifting it by 0.5% from 45 to 5%. As you can see from this BBC graph, it's not the biggest rise we've seen in the last year. That happened in November when the bank put the rates up by 0.75%. But with interest at 5%, it's the highest rate we've seen since 2009 in the immediate aftermath of the financial crash. That's when the bank rapidly lowered rates to stimulate the economy. After that, Britain enjoyed a period of historically low interest rates until late 2021. So why have interest rates gone up again and gone up by so much? Well, it's yet another attempt by the Bank of England to control inflation. Yesterday, it was revealed that the Consumer Price Index, the CPI, the measure of inflation we use, had remained at 8.7% for May, defying Bank of England and government predictions that previous rate hikes would cause it to drop. But there was even worse news. Core inflation is the rate of inflation once you strip out the price of volatile goods like consumer energy, food, tobacco, and alcohol. And that actually went up to 7.1%, a rise of 0.3% from April. But it wasn't really news because core inflation has been rising since the beginning of the year, while CPI has been falling. So what does this all mean? Well, it shows that the old story of inflation being based solely on what economists call an exogenous shock, an unpredictable external event like the war in Ukraine, isn't going to fly anymore. And nor is the story that it's caused by workers asking for more pay to keep up with inflation. That's because what's been driving core inflation is largely the rising costs of services in the UK. That's firms putting their prices up to preserve or even increase profits in the face of rising costs. Here's Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey explaining the rising core inflation rate and also mentioning that magic word, profit, for the very first time. Well, let me be very clear on this because it's an important issue. We've got to get and we will get inflation back to its target. To do that, I have to be clear, and we expect inflation to come down this year. To do that, we cannot continue to have the current level of wage increases. And we can't, can't have companies seeking to rebuild profit margins, which means prices continue to go up at their current rates. But what I would say to people is we expect inflation to come down. And it's important then that price setting and wage setting reflects that because the current levels, I'll be absolutely honest, are unsustainable. It looks like even the mainstream media is finally beginning to get it. Foreign Secretary James Cleverly appeared on Radio 4's Today programme, where he delivered this complete car crash. What is the Prime Minister's plan to halve inflation other than waiting for the Bank of England to raise rates so much that it causes 
unemployment, perhaps a recession, or hoping global pressures ease, both of which are outside the Prime Minister's control? Well, there's not, it's not about hoping, it's actually about influencing. I and mean, this is part of my job, this is my department's job, is we influence global events. We don't just sit passively and watch them happen. So, for example, bringing it back to this uh, conference, uh, Ukraine was a massive net exporter of grain and a net exporter of energy. Now, energy price inflation and food inflation are two of the things that are driving the general inflation that we're all feeling. So helping resolve this conflict will have a, a contributory factor to bringing that inflation down, making sure that the UK economy is a more productive economy through uh, through training, through um, uh, the, the the ideas, of, you know, apprenticeship work that uh, my good friend Julian Keegan is is doing at the Department for Education. That's not going to bring inflation things, down. I mean, the things that you mentioned are are not part of core inflation. And if you look at core inflation, it's very clear. We we're talking to a former governor, deputy governor of the Bank of England, an hour ago on this program, uh, also Charlie Bean. It's very clear that the UK has got a bigger problem with inflation than other countries. And if you strip out those things that you mention, which are volatile, like food and energy prices, core inflation in this country is different to other countries in that it's going up. I just want to know what the Prime Minister's planning to do about it, because uh, influencing apprenticeships isn't really going to affect inflation in the short term. Well, no, look, we recognise that you have to deal with things in the short, medium and long term. Yeah, so what, what is the plan in the short term to reduce inflation from the Prime Minister? That's what I'm asking. Well, as I say, the, uh, the point is, uh, with things like um, uh, driving down the implications of, uh, of, of you know food and fuel because the, Sorry, the, you know, I'm asking you about core inflation in this country is rising and is different therefore from other countries. The prime minister said cutting inflation is a top priority. What is the prime minister's short term plan for reducing inflation? Well, one of the things that we uh, ex one of the main vehicles for short term. Uh, addressing inflation is interest rates. The, uh, yeah, the, the Prime Minister doesn't control is, that. So what's the Prime Minister's plan? What's he going to do? Well, look, the, the point is, not all the levers of control are in the uh, government's hands. We recognise that. Well, But the choice was made, so the choice was made, and of course we continue to support that, to uh, have independent uh, Bank of England. We set uh, inflation targets uh, for the Bank of England. The Bank of England sets interest rates in response to those inflation uh, targets. We do what we uh, can do to try and uh, address uh, the issues over which we have direct control, and I've discussed uh, a number of those. You, you know, you mentioned uh, apprenticeships. There. You mentioned apprenticeships. Now, I, I really appreciate your the, the sort of economics lesson about uh, the decision to make the Bank of England independent in the 1990s. I totally appreciate that. I'm just making really clear: millions of our listeners are really concerned about inflation. We've established that inflation in this country is going up, core inflation, and I'm, the Prime Minister has made it a priority to reduce inflation. You've talked about short, medium, and long term, and I loaded this question by saying that Bank of England interest rates and global pressures are largely beyond your control. So in terms of what this country's Prime Minister is well, doing immediately to reduce inflation, what is it? What is the Prime Minister doing to get inflation down? So what we are doing is making sure that in the areas where we do have control, so for example, one of the reasons why we have been thoughtful but cautious uh, on public sector pay awards is we know that is uh, one of those things that uh, adds inflationary pressures. What a car crash. He says right at the top of that that uh, one of the reasons inflation has gone up is because Ukraine is an exporter of energy and grain. It doesn't export energy. It's dependent on Russia for energy. And to repeat, core inflation is going up. It went up by 0.3%. That doesn't include food, energy, alcohol, 
things that can be quite price volatile. Absolutely zero cents from one of the most senior members of the Sunak government. Uh, today's interest rate hike will cause huge pain for mortgage holders, with some experts calling it the worst mortgage squeeze since the crash of the early 1990s. And the government has ruled out providing any relief to homeowners. So, what was Rishi Sunak's response to today's interest rate announcement? He went to an IKEA in Kent, where he said this. Yesterday, you would have heard some news about inflation. Today, you may have seen what the Bank of England has announced with interest rates. And I'm sure that actually fills many of you with some anxiety right? and some concern about what's going on and what does that mean for you and your families. Now, I'm here to tell you that I am totally 100% on it and it is going to be okay and we are going to get through this. And that is the most important thing I wanted to let you know today. I'm on it, guys. He sounds like somebody trying to procure Class A drugs at a party at 3 a.m. We're going to get through it. All right, Daniel Benningfield, but where's the detail? That was Sunak's a public message, but behind the scenes, the government appears increasingly desperate to distance itself from the Bank of England's approach. This was Transport Minister Mark Harper on Sky News last night. Do you have confidence in the government of the Bank of England? Yes, the government, look, the governor of the Bank of England has a difficult job to do. The job of the government and the Chancellor is to work with the governor and the Monetary Policy Committee to support them to get inflation under control. They're doing an important job. Uh, it's a tough job. Um, they're independent for a reason. Uh, they have to make these tough decisions. Um, but the, the government's working very closely and has confidence in the bank, yes. Why, why do you have confidence in the government, the Bank of England? Uh, because I think he is doing the, he's making the tough decisions with the Monetary Policy Committee that are necessary. It's never popular to put up interest rates. But I think the, the bank has a job. They were too slow, right? That's a criticism, isn't it? Some people make that criticism, yes. And there was a decision to make at the beginning about whether inflation was transitory or not. I mean, you may remember Rishi Sunak uh, made it clear when he was Chancellor that he thought inflation was a problem. Actually, he saw that early on. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons why one of the reasons why I backed him to be prime minister because I think he uh, he knows his stuff when it comes to economics. That's why he wants to support the bank in driving down inflation because he knows that it's only when we get inflation under control uh, that we'll be able to then okay. lower interest rates and get the economy motoring and growing. So Sunak spotted that the bank strategy was wrong ages ago, but was too polite to say anything. All very British, isn't it? Now, there's good reason for Sunak to want to put some clear water between himself and the mortgage disaster on the horizon. This was him speaking to Sky's Beth Rigby just two weeks ago. Two of your five pledges, con uh, inflation halved by the end of the year, the UK out of recession by the end of the year. If you fail on either of them, do you take personal responsibility? You don't blame the Bank of England, you don't blame consumers, you don't blame businesses. It's on you personally, because they're your personal pledges. Of course it's on me personally. I'm the Prime Minister. I'm the person who set out those five pledges to halve inflation, grow the economy, reduce debt, cut waiting lists, and to stop the boats. And I intend to deliver on those. And when it comes to growing the economy, as you mentioned, we've already avoided the recession that many predicted. People are upgrading our growth forecasts as we speak. Famous last words. I'm joined now by co-director of Positive Money, Fran Boyt. Fran, thanks for joining us this evening. Thanks for having me on. Our pleasure. What's happening precisely with inflation and should we expect it to start falling now that the base rate is at 5%, the highest in more than a decade? It's pretty depressing, isn't it? Um, I mean, when you look at the big picture, you know, uh, this inflation is caused globally, high fossil fuel prices, high food prices, which is caused by climate change and ecological stress and also that corporate profiteering. Um, and interest rate hikes are going to do nothing for any of those. So the ONS has pointed out that uh, about 75% of the three quarters of 
the effect of the inflation we're seeing is to do with not just energy prices, but goods and services that have very high energy intensities. And we see there is more and more data on the effects of climate change on food prices uh, with extreme events such as, as droughts, etc., having a huge effect. The European Central Bank has also projected that um, rising temperatures could impact food prices by up to 3% a, a year by 2035. So these are system level challenges what we're calling fossilflation and climateflation. They're not going away anytime soon, and we do need economic policy to meet the challenges that we're facing. At the same time is those hikes from uh, the Bank of England yet again today, which is going to do nothing for those and, in fact, just make things a lot more terrible and miserable for people up and down the country with mortgages and rates becoming more and more unaffordable, you know, the cost of living crisis deepening, um, and at the same time expanding those bank profits. Those are the only winners from today's announcement. And we saw the bank to an extent caving into pressure from the city, raising um, 0.5 rather than 0.25 um, percentage points today. Um, you know, the Bank of England should be serving the public and not the City of London. Um, but we've seen pressure not just from the city, but also from people like the Chancellor's advisors, Karen Ward, I think he works for JP Morgan. Um, so it's a pretty depressing state of affairs. Um, you know, as you've touched on, you know, the Bank of England is really actively trying to cause a recession in the UK to push people out of work. You know, they want them to stop asking for higher wages in this cost of living crisis. But as we've seen today, you know, their own report shows that's not the problem. Uh, they they talk about basically the, the high pay in the last month has come from finance and business, the high pay sectors, and that the low pay sectors, you know, pay has basically been flat. So, you know, just to be clear, these, these rate hikes are going to boost bank profits, they're going to boost bank pay. So, you know, there may be a wage price spiral, but it's only between the bank and the bankers uh, everyone else kind of continuing to suffer. So, you know, this approach is about making workers poorer and banks richer. Yeah, I'll just pull up something you said there, which is super interesting. So many great points. I love this idea of fossilflation. But the idea that the, the people getting the biggest pay rises are bankers and sort of fundamentally very wealthy people in financial services. They're also joined by working class you know, voters, workers, uh, who, who tend not to have a university degree. So in jobs like bartending, uh, we've obviously seen HGV drivers, welders, uh, fruit pickers. Since Brexit, we've obviously seen a constraint of labour supply, fewer people going into these jobs, and obviously then workers in these jobs can, can ask for more money. And that's an outgrowth of Brexit. So you've got really bankers doing well out of this, and because of Brexit, certain people being able to ask for higher wages. These are two things that apparently Rishi Sunak is all for, you're obviously pessimistic about what this will do to um, address the situation of inflation, by which I mean rate rises. I would have thought it's just their sort of ideological safe space. You're saying it's also as a result of sort of lobbying by the city. So how high do you expect interest rates to go before they make the decision, actually, this isn't working and the political overhead is too high? I mean, you know, I think it's gone a lot further than many forecasters already thought. Um, so now people are adjusting to saying maybe 6% in middle of next year could be when it peaks. But really, I mean, it seems like the Bank of England is, you know, seems very happy to, to kind of continue down this path. The UK has a really weak economy. As we know, there's a lot of debt. And, and you know, we've heard um, 
you know, what's going to happen with mortgages uh, in terms of heaping huge amounts more costs on, on households. So this this pushes us into dangerous territory, into kind of financial instability territory um, with these hikes just putting that pressure on private debt uh, and it's looking ever more dangerous. So, you know, I guess our, our um, you know, we don't know how far it, it could go to potentially more financial instability, but the kind of best hope is that there is a change in government, I guess, at the end of next year and there's some supportive packages for households. You talked a lot about core inflation being higher in, say, the UK and the U- than the US. Um that's partly because we've seen that the Inflation Reduction Act happening in the US, which has gone some way to ease some of those pressures when we have still seen, you know, the, the Fed continuing to hike rates. Um, but I guess, you know, f- for all the US as well as the UK, what we need to see more of is is macroeconomic policy coordination that can, you know, not kind of think we can address these in silos or pull in different directions. Um so those short-term measures like public sector pay rises, well taxes, taxes on on not just oil and gas, but also banks, and also potentially things like price controls. And then we need a longer-term strategy for the fossilflation, the climateflation, in terms of getting our economies off fossil fuels and also, you know, taking us towards some kind of just green transition, if that's possible. Those are the sensible policies. I, I, I'm not expecting them any time over the next 12 months, but... It does feel like there's a growing division between the Bank of England and the government on this. And, you know, people like Jacob Rees-Mogg, real monetarists, would probably be thinking, Mr. Bailey, if you don't do what we're saying, we will reconsider formal Bank of England independence. Where do you think this ends up? Because it may be a, a, a situation, say, in January, February next year, massive political discontent, interest rates, like you said, 6% plus, it's not working. Um, and I wonder if at that point, you know, a section of the Tory party will say, well, look, we need to sack Bailey. We need to have political oversight of interest rates again. What do you think of that quickly? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, conservatives, Tories from all wings of the party will see this absolute hike in mortgage, mortgage rates and, and middle classes that may have previously voted conservative you know, moving towards not voting for them. And, and as we move, you know, the, into less than a year out from a general election, it can just be like a slow, painful car crash. And so, of course, um, you know, Sunak doesn't want to see rates go higher. Most Conservatives will kind of realise more and more that this is is kind of going to boot them out of government um, is going to be a big factor in that. Um, you know, they don't have any answers. They don't have any ideas for for what a kind of economic strategy could look like that could support households. You know, they seem to have dismissed the idea of a windfall tax, even though you know, Margaret Thatcher did do it. It was quite a small one. But in the last time, interest rates were hiked in the early 80s. Um, and so, you know, they don't really have an economic plan. Um, and so, you know, we saw um, what happened with Liz Truss when they she was pulling a different direction from Bank of England. Obviously, eventually she got booted out. Well, this time it might be uh, a general election. But I think in terms of independence, you know, this comes up a lot. And what we we often say at Positive Money is like it's operational independence. But remember, the mandate is set by the uh, the government by the chancellor and as I said before what we really need to tackle some of these longer term system level challenges is that coordinated macroeconomic policy between monetary between fiscal between industrial um, so yeah I'm sure we'll hear some some conservatives you know trying to kick the Bank of England but but they probably won't be getting at the real challenges we face when it comes to economic policy next story 
As rising rates start to hit, one group of people affected is mortgage holders. And today, Labour has said that the government should force banks to help those struggling with mortgage payments. On Radio 4 this morning, Nick Robinson spoke to Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves. Former chancellors, people who've lived through inflationary periods, those like Norman Lamont, came here on The World at One the other day and said, if a recession is needed, so be it. It is so important to get inflation out of the system, you have to live with that. Would Labour live with that? I don't like that sort of language because the impact that recessions have on families, on pensioners, on uh, businesses is uh, disastrous. That's the and language, though. What about the reality? You know the economics. What people say is if it isn't hurting, it isn't working. It has to hurt. What we need to do is to provide support for those people that are struggling most. That is why for a year and a half now, I've been urging the government to introduce a proper windfall tax on the huge profits that the energy Excuse companies make. Providing to support. People. doesn't get inflation down. I'm asking well, you actually, how Labour would get inflation mm -hmm. down, not what you do to help people who are suffering from it. Now, the question was asked just a few minutes ago of the Foreign Secretary by Amol, what is the short-term plan of the government to get inflation down? You can't simply rely on the Bank of England. A Labour government, what would your short-term plan be to get inflation down? Well, actually, what I would be doing if I was Chancellor would be helping people who are struggling with those higher costs. There's different ways you can do that. But actually helping people by properly taxing the energy companies and using that money to help people with their bills is a practical thing that government could still do. That doesn't but get inflection down. It can do, actually. No, Nick, it can do. What it does is say, yeah, actually, I'm going to help you with the cost no, of rising prices. It, it can, actually, because if you were to freeze bills, for example, or reduce them, then that does directly impact inflation. But the point is, however you use that money from the windfall tax, you could use it to shield people from those higher prices. A combative response there from a pretty informed shadow chancellor, insisting that taxes on the wealthy and redistribution can help, while a recession can and should be avoided. I can't help but admit it, I'm impressed and I'm hardly Rachel Reeves's biggest fan. Reeves went on to clarify her party's five-point plan in specifically helping those with mortgages. Let's turn to the plan. You say you've got a five-point plan to help people who are struggling to pay their mortgages. In essence, it's urging the banks to let people take longer to pay their mortgage off and to switch to an interest-only mortgage. It's a bit more than Action that. that they're already taking. It's a bank. bit more than that, Nick. It's not urging. It's an instruction. It's an instruction that was made during the COVID pandemic via the regulator to say to banks they have to offer these products to people who are in financial uh, difficulty. So interest-only mortgages, extending the term of the mortgages, uh, halting repossession orders for six months, and crucially saying to customers, if you seek support, your credit rating is not affected because there are many people who are really worried at the moment about coming forward and identifying themselves as someone that are struggling with their mortgage because they worry that's going to have knock-on effects on their credit ratings. Now, and I'm really concerned about these people who have uh, saved up a deposit, who have been making their monthly mortgage payments, who go out to work every day, are being clobbered by energy bills, food prices. And now on top of all of that, on average, when you're remortgaging, you're looking at nearly £3,000 extra a year. And I want to support those people to get through this difficult period. Again, Reeves was pretty combative there. Good, it's well overdue. So what are these five points that Labour are proposing and which they think the government should, quote, urgently adopt? Well, here we go. 
Labour's five-point plan on mortgages. Number one, requiring lenders to allow borrowers to switch to interest-only mortgage payments for a temporary period. Number two, requiring lenders to allow borrowers to lengthen the term of their mortgage period. Number three, requiring lenders to reverse any support measures when the borrower requests. Number four, requiring lenders to wait a minimum of six months before initiating repossession proceedings. And number five, instructing the FCA to urgently issue consumer guidance, that's the Financial Conduct Authority, stating that borrowers making temporary switches to interest-only mortgage payments and lengthening the term of their mortgage period should not see their credit score affected. Importantly, this plan doesn't require taxpayer money, as is the case with the proposal put forward by the Liberal Democrats. They are calling for a £3 billion emergency mortgage protection fund to help those facing repossession. The right-wing Centre for Policy Studies responded with this. Labour's plan mostly requires lenders to do a variety of things they already will be doing voluntarily because they understand the pressures their customers are facing and don't want people to lose their homes unavoidably. Uh, I think they mean avoidably, but there you go. Uh, unavoidably, rather. But direct intervention of this sort can still have big unintended consequences. To the extent that it forces banks to offer greater cross-subsidies to particular customers, it is bound to raise costs for other borrowers or prevent necessary adjustments in the mortgage market from taking place. It is much better to leave banks to work things out with borrowers. Basically, I'll translate. There's no criticism there. What Labour is proposing is entirely common sense. But we're on the other side. We're Tories. It's a right-wing think tank after all, so we have to complain. This is a family show, so I'll avoid especially colourful language. Ash, what do you make of Labour's five-point plan? Well, I think that the measures seem reasonable, but I don't think they're necessarily going to be enough to deal with the sheer scale of the crisis and who it's going to affect. So when it comes to the recent hikes in interest rates, I know that lots of people say, oh, well, you know, in the 90s and in the 1980s, you had much higher interest rates. Sure, you had higher interest rates, but on much smaller debts. So the debt to earnings ratio on modern day mortgages is absolutely massive. And that's, of course, something which is even more pronounced in the UK's major cities. So even these, you know, historically smallish increases in the interest rate um, are going to have a massive impact on people. And in terms of who that's going to affect, it's disproportionately going to be younger homeowners. It's going to be people who bought their properties more recently and perhaps were encouraged to really stretch their mortgage, to get a bigger mortgage um, because of the cut in stamp duty, which was introduced uh, during the pandemic. So what, what we're facing at the moment, the reason why so many people are calling it a mortgage time bomb, is actually the seeds of a crisis which has been a really, really long time in the making, which is there's kind of been a bit of a pyramid scheme element to the UK housing market, which is you're, you're encouraging all of these uh, later adopters into the market who are then paying off the earlier adopters, the people who are selling their properties who bought them much earlier. And that's driving up the value of housing. But it's all based on debt. So when that debt becomes expensive, when wages aren't going up, to help people when there's rising insecurity in the employment market, that is a crisis and it's huge. And that's not necessarily something uh, that's going to be dealt with simply by forcing the banks to 
allow more favorable terms for the paying off of that debt. I think it's going to be something really massive because also this is something which impacts renters. We're hearing about the increase in interest rates purely in terms of homeowners. Of course, that's true. That's going to be something which is going to hit people really hard, particularly if they're coming to the end of their fixed rate period now. But that's something which is going to impact renters because what we know about landlords is that they pass on their personal costs to renters. Many of them are paying off interest-only mortgages. And there's also a phenomenon of landlords looking at the economic environment. And even if they're not someone who's directly impacted by it, that becomes an excuse to hike the rents. That's something which many of my friends have experienced, which is, you know, emails from their landlords or lettings agents saying, oh yeah, you've just been paying too little. So we're gonna we're gonna put the rent up by 15%, 20%, 30%, whatever it is. And they've got very little control over that. They've got no control over that. So I think what's missing in Labour's promise to deal with the mortgage crisis that's looming is how is that going to impact renters? How are you going to make sure that renters are protected? Because much less likely to have any form of savings to fall back on and certainly don't have an asset. Uh, Renters are truly a, a captive audience who are being squeezed for every last penny that they've got. And they've been largely forgotten by the major political parties. I'd add one more point, Ash, which is looking at these points in their five-point plan. I mean, what it means is that you won't see a correction. You wouldn't see price falls for, for housing. And fundamentally, we have to have house prices fall. We do. Sorry. We do. We can't have the present ratio, which we have at the moment, of earnings to housing in places like London. It will have to fall. And I think that's a conversation no political party really wants to start. Uh, in the case of buy-to-let landlords, a lot of the pain inflicted by the increased interest rates will be passed on to renters, as you just mentioned there, Ash, who will be expected to subsidise their landlords' increased costs. Here in Navarra, we have nothing against owner-occupiers. I'm one myself. But it's striking how much more the media is interested in homeowners' pain than it is in renters' suffering. This clip is from Newsnight, where mortgage holder Charlotte Town explained how interest rate rises have affected her. The war in Ukraine is not helping. Um, the banks, uh, frankly, I think, uh, need to need to review what they're doing. On my personal circumstances, the interest over the, um, well, I suppose, and the capital over the entire duration of the mortgage equates to £1.3 million. That's an eye-watering sum of money to pay back for a property which is currently valued at £600,000. Do the interest rates need to be so high and do my savers rates need to be so low? Um, I think there's serious, serious questions that need to be asked. And if I was a government, I would be certainly looking into what we can do about that. Look, that's a lot. Spending £1.3 million on an asset worth less than half that amount isn't good. Although in reality, when she's paid that mortgage off in 20 years or whatever, it will almost certainly be worth more than that, maybe much more. And interest rates will probably go down at some point between now and then when she shops around for a mortgage deal in a couple of years, five years, 10 years, and they probably won't be this high. But town's on news night because rising interest rates mean she'll be paying out more for that asset than she was last month. Here's the thing. She's still getting an asset. Millions pay massive sums of money over their whole lifetimes, and they don't even get an asset at the end of it. It's called renting, by the way. 
Now, I know that's a category of people ignored by most of the media most of the time, but they could at least try and cover it, particularly as renters' outgoings are also likely to increase in the coming months. In fact, that's already started to happen. This is a headline from Zoopla. Rental increases outpace earnings for 21 months in a row. Elsewhere in that article, Zoopla conclude that rents are up 10% in the last 12 months, a figure that rises to 13% in London. Ash, rents have outpaced earnings for 21 consecutive months, almost two years. Who with more than a cluster of brain cells thinks that's sustainable? Nobody thinks it's sustainable, but nobody in politics has the incentive to care about it. There is no political incentive to address the needs of renters in this country. And the reason why is because of the electoral system that we have. It prioritizes a handful of swing votes who disproportionately tend to be homeowners uh, in smaller towns not in the big cities. And why would you start going, oh, maybe we should expand the pool of people that we care about? That's not in politicians' best interest, particularly if they're looking out for people who aren't asset owners rather than the very, very rich. So we've ended up in this position where renters, because of the way in which the economy is structured, because of the way the education system is structured, end up stacking up in big cities, which tend to be safe labour seats. So Labour get to take them for granted and the Tories have absolutely no interest in reaching out to them. So we've had an economy uh, which has been, you know, growing on the basis of asset wealth, not on uh, the economy becoming more productive, not because wages going up, not because people's standards of living are improving. And that's been a state of affairs which has been baked in uh, since the financial crisis because other people's votes simply do not matter. And I don't think that that's something which is going to change soon. The only thing which is different is now that homeowners, people who are paying off their mortgages are being treated like renters. They're finding themselves subject to these incredibly arbitrary hikes in their monthly outgoings. And Liz Truss and her, you know, her uh, uh, the people who who replaced her, Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak, accidentally created what the left have been trying to do for ages, which is create a political coalition between mortgage payers and renters. Um, so that's what's ultimately going to bring down the Conservatives at the next, next election, not Boris Johnson's naked conga line or whatever. Next story. A lot of people in high places had links to Jeffrey Epstein. And for many, those relationships have left them at least tainted in the public eye. Now, new documents disclosed during a New York court case brought by Epstein's victims against international finance firm JP Morgan reveal that a figure at the very heart of Keir Starmer's Labour Party was especially close to Epstein. Yes, we're talking about spin doctor extraordinaire and architect of Tony Blair's new Labour, Lord Peter Mandelson. Now, Mandelson's connection to Epstein isn't entirely new knowledge. This image emerged last year. It shows Peter Mandelson celebrating Epstein's birthday at Epstein's Paris apartment in 2007. And this image, first published in 2019, shows Mandelson out shopping with Epstein in plush St. Barts. The photo was taken in 2005, just six months before Epstein was arrested in Florida and charged with a string of sex offenses against a minor. 
at the time of both these photos, Mandelson was a European trade commissioner, so not exactly at the centre of Westminster government. But new documents show that Mandelson remained close to Epstein even while he was a government minister. And, crucially, after the paedophile had been convicted for, for soliciting a young girl. After Epstein's 2019 arrest on sex trafficking charges, JP Morgan commissioned an internal report into the bank's 15-year relationship with him. That probe, codenamed Operation Jeep, concluded this. Jeffrey Epstein appears to maintain a particularly close relationship with Prince Andrew, the Duke of York, and Lord Peter Mandelson, a senior member of the British government. The Financial Times, who broke the story, goes into more detail about what's in that report. Now, in the extract I'm about to show you, there's a reference to a Jamie. That's apparently J.P. Morgan chief executive, Jamie Dimon. In June 2009, months after Mandelson had returned to government to prop up the beleaguered administration of Blair's successor, Gordon Brown, he was given the additional title of First Secretary of State. Days later, Epstein wrote to Jess Staley, then his personal banker at J.P. Morgan. Well, for all intents and purposes, Peter Mandelson is now Deputy Prime Minister. At the time, Epstein was serving an 18-month sentence at the private wing of the Palm Beach County Stockade for soliciting a young girl. He was not released on probation until July 22nd, 2009. In the emails referred to in the J.P. Morgan report, Epstein writes to Staley on June 17th to say, Peter will be staying at 71st over weekend. Do you want to organize either you or you and Jamie quietly up to you? Now, where was Mandelson staying? According to the report, it was in Epstein's $77 million penthouse on Manhattan's Upper East Side. Mandelson has refused to confirm or deny that he stayed in Epstein's apartment that weekend. But if it happened, that's a government minister staying in the apartment of a wealthy financier while he was serving time in jail for paying for sex with an underage girl. The FT goes on to report this. Elsewhere in the emails, Mandelson, still a business secretary, messaged Epstein on March 29th, 2010, referencing an apparent health issue and adding, can Jess send me email on issues regarding Dodds-Volker, a reference to US banking regulations enacted in the wake of the global financial crisis. On two later occasions, in November 2010 and January 2011, when Mandelson was no longer in government, Epstein noted to Staley that, quote, PT was with him in Paris, where the financier owned a sumptuous apartment. Just weeks after Labour lost the election in 2010, Mandelson's thoughts turned to getting rich as a businessman. And who better to ask for help than his old friend, billionaire and convicted child abuser Jeffrey Epstein? The FT reports this. On May 27, 2010, Mandelson wrote to Epstein, This is thing I'm speaking to in Shanghai. If you can open the attachments, you'll see the entire Chinese banking fraternity is attending. Isn't it something that JPM should be represented at if they want to spread their wings in China? Epstein forwarded the message to Staley. Then, in October, the Financial Times reports that Staley forwarded Epstein this email from Mandelson about his recent trip to Congo, Brazzaville. I talked at length with President Sasu Engesso, including about the above new mine. Exploration, he told me, has been undertaken by a consortium of investors backed up by JP Morgan. The government is reaching a final decision on whether to issue a full mining license. I spoke to the Minister of Mines about this. And there's more. Two weeks later, Epstein told Staley that PT is just back from Russia. On October 27th, Staley forwarded Epstein an email he sent to Mandelson that appeared to include internal JP Morgan Chase information on a deal regarding the privatization of businesses in Russia. Staley told colleagues, when Lord Mandelson can help, please let me know. 
Now, there's no suggestion that Peter Mandelson was involved in Jeffrey Epstein's sex trafficking of young girls. But the JP Morgan report is just another example of his incredible lack of judgment, particularly when it comes to the super rich. In 1998, Mandelson resigned as a cabinet minister, reportedly sobbing after being ordered to quit by Tony Blair. That was after it emerged he'd taken out a secret £373,000 loan to buy a house. And the lender? Millionaire and then Labour minister and new statesman owner Jeffrey Robinson. Then, in 2001, Mandelson quit the government again, this time over accusations he'd helped one of the billionaire Hinduja brothers get a passport in return for a £1 million donation to the government's Millennium Dome project. An inquiry later cleared him. But that wasn't the end of it. In 2008, Mandelson found himself in hot water again. That was after he was found to have stayed with Oleg Deripaska, a Russian aluminium billionaire on a luxury yacht off the coast of Corfu, arranged by banker Nat Rothschild, a mutual friend. At the time, now Lord Mandelson was EU Trade Commissioner and oversaw the EU's, wait for it, aluminium tariffs. Just to repeat that, the man in charge of EU aluminium tariffs was enjoying the hospitality of a Russian aluminium oligarch. Mandelson, of course, denied any conflict of interest. What an unlucky guy caught up in all these scandals, but he never did anything wrong. Asked about his links with Epstein, Mandelson's spokesperson said this, Lord Mandelson very much regrets ever having been introduced to Epstein. This connection has been a matter of public record for some time. He never had any kind of professional or business relationship with Epstein in any form. Oh, you regret it. I bet you do now. Notice that he doesn't say, I deny I stayed at Epstein's penthouse. Interesting. All of this would be just another sleazy chapter in the book of Peter Mandelson's life if it weren't for the fact that Petey finds himself back in Labour's inner circle. It's been reported that Mandelson has been giving Starmuck policy advice, even perhaps orchestrating some of those many U-turns we've been reporting here at Navarra. And we also know that Mandelson has a close relationship with Shadow Health Secretary Wes Streeting. In 2015, Mandelson went out on the campaign trail for Streeting, even meeting Streeting's mum. And as recently as last year, Mandelson was bigging up Wes Streeting, saying this to the Financial Times, Streeting leads by values rather than ideology. That puts him absolutely in the mainstream of the British public. He's not an all-things-to-all-people politician. He's punchy, not glib. Some in the party may be reminded of an early Blair, but he's not an identical New Labour politician. He's his own man. Are Starmer and Streeting regretting that association now? Of course not. These new revelations were put to Starmer. The Telegraph say this on Labour's response. So Keir's spokesman said there were a range of people that Keir Starmer talks to, including, quote, people who were part of the last Labour government, including Peter Mandelson. Just extraordinary. This is exactly the kind of sleaze Labour denigrates when it's the Tories. Frankly, if anything, this is worse. Ash, how is Lord Mandelson Teflon? He seems to get away with crisis after crisis, scandal after scandal, and yet there's a non-trivial possibility this man, as a lord, could be in the next Labour cabinet. The first thing to say is that different people on the Labour right play different roles. And there's a whole load of people who I really, really, really passionate disagree, passionately disagree with on policy grounds, but who ultimately take that view because they genuinely think that's what's best for the country, that's what's best for winning elections, that's what's best for a Labour government. And that's a policy disagreement. 
I find the things that they stand for horrific, but ultimately you can go, all right, you stand for the things that you say you stand for. Peter Mandelson is a totally different kettle of fish, in my opinion. I think that the role that he has played within New Labour and also subsequently after the end of uh, Tony Blair's governments is to be that person who is the go-between between, you know, a right-wing Labour government or Labour leadership and the money. And when we're talking about the money, what we're talking about are oligarchs who want a semblance of legitimacy, who want access to UK and EU markets. And Peter Mandelson seems to be quite happy to be the guy who helps facilitate that happening. And that's something which is really, I think, as much at the core of the Blairite project as, you know, invading Iraq on a whim or, you know, moving domestic politics to the centre. It's about having that relationship with oligarchic wealth. We see it in terms of the Tony Blair Institute and, you know, the various institutes that also named after Tony Blair uh, that comprise it. They've done an awful lot of work with the Saudi regime, did an awful lot of work with the Kazakh regime, did an awful lot of work with Paul Kagame's regime. And it's all about, I think, legitimizing and bringing in these sources of wealth from overseas, which are tied to very unsavory sources. Um, And I think that that's why you can see this relationship with Jeffrey Epstein, even after uh, he's in prison for child sex offences. It's because Peter Mandelson once more is, is, I guess, lapping up the perks that come from being that middleman between his wing of politics and the money. That means that you get to go on the yachts, means you get to stay in the luxury penthouses. And that's something which I not only think is sleazy and wrong, I do think that it, it, it smirches our politics. I think it it undermines our democracy and it makes politics the preserve of a very small number, very unsavory elites rather than a democracy in which we all participate. And I think that this is something which Keir Starmer should take more seriously. He's not going to, because right now there isn't a political incentive to, uh, but he should. Because if you've got one standard which says, okay, if you're Jamie Driscoll, and you've been on a panel with Ken Loach, that's unforgivable, unforgivable. You shouldn't be allowed anywhere near the reins of power. But then you can have someone advising you pretty closely who maintained a friendship with a convicted child sex offender, stayed in his house, but standards don't make any sense. They don't make any sense now. The point of the the Jamie Driscoll fiasco wasn't about how do you implement the rules fairly. It was to serve a factional purpose. But I think that it's insulting. It's insulting to the public's intelligence to have such wildly different standards of, of probity and integrity. Um, I'm not sure I agree with you. I'm not sure that Peter Mandelson would be in a Keir Starmer cabinet simply because uh, he is so widely disliked. And also there is so much for the papers to, you know, magically notice when they get bored during a Keir Starmer term in government. I think that perhaps he's most effective for Starmer where he is, which is giving advice 
from behind the scenes and not really being dragged into the processes of accountability that he would uh, should he take up a formal position within a government. Well, I, I said there's a non-trivial chance, so I don't think he will be, but I think there's a possibility. And uh, I, I think you're right, that's where he should be, Ash, but uh, it, it turns out he quite likes the limelight. Just to say quickly, I agree with a great deal of what you just said there, and to add, isn't it extraordinary that Peter Mandelson, who has a £10 million home, gets to pontificate on how West Streeting is aligned with mainstream Britain? What the hell would he know? The guy's been in business class and private yachts and five-star hotels the last 30 years. Our final story. I love this story, by the way. This is a great story. There has been a flurry of stories recently about how gender is taught in schools. Alongside that is how schools affirm the gender of certain pupils, specifically those experiencing gender dysphoria. Big topics which arouse strong feelings around civil liberties and the age at which we discuss certain things with children. But, as is so often the case, the right has turned that conversation into a complete circus, replete with clowns and intellectual sword swallowing. One of the ringmasters is celebrity head teacher Catherine Birbal Singh. She recently spoke to The Telegraph, who went with this typically understated, sensible title. I know of a child who identifies as a hologram, says Britain's strictest head. Catherine Birbal Singh says children allowed to self-identify as animals and moons should be moved to a different school by their parents. But that was just the start of it. The article goes on to say this. Catherine Birbal Singh, founder of Michaela School in West London, said schools were failing their pupils if they tolerated such behaviour and parents should act quickly. She said she was aware of a child at one school who identifies as a gay male hologram and at least one school where a whole group of pupils identify as cats. Ms. Birbal Singh said the issue of children wanting to be recognised as animals was a societal problem rooted in parents' unwillingness to set boundaries or take difficult decisions about parenting. She also suggested the issue of children identifying as cats, horses, dinosaurs, and other animals or objects in schools was more widespread than people realised, as teachers, quote, are not allowed to tell you what's going on. The teachers aren't allowed to tell you what's going on. Who's stopping them? The government, teaching unions, MI5, and the deep state? The public is not allowed to know two things. One is the existence of extraterrestrial life, and the other is that Patrick, aged eight, identifies as a helicopter. Birbal Singh went on to add this. As a society, we've lost our way. Teachers and parents have allowed children to lead the way and adult authority has completely dissolved. In schools, we've allowed children to lead the way. We are scared of our children. We're scared of our responsibility of leading and we're shying away from our duty of looking after our children. It starts from when they're babies or toddlers and we give them a choice of food rather than showing them to eat what's in front of them. For parents, for parents of children who are allowed to behave like this in classrooms, I think they need to move schools quickly. I don't want to blame the school because I think it's society's problem, but there will be schools that are more tolerant of this kind of behavior and schools that are less tolerant. Ash, have you ever met a single child that seriously identifies as a quote, gay male hologram? No, but I'm now going to maybe encourage my nieces and nephews to get a bit more creative when they're playing, you know, dress up and pretending games. It's always, oh, I'm a ballerina. Oh, I'm a fireman. Boring. Call me when you're a gay male hologram. Um, I mean, joking aside, I think what this shows is that there is a concerted attempt to import a American moral panic here into the UK because this idea of children identifying as cats or showing up 
to school as furries. This was something which has its origins in an American conspiracy theory, which is this ridiculous idea that schools are having to keep cat litter in store because there are kids who identify as cats and so they'll only urinate and defecate on cat litter. Now, there is a grain of truth at this story, at the heart of this story, but it's not the one you think. Uh, The grain of truth is that schools have been keeping cat litter on site, or at least one school has, not because any children identify as cats or come to school dressed up as furries, but because if there's a school shooting and they have to barricade themselves into a cupboard or into a classroom and students need to go to the bathroom, it would be a way of doing it in a slightly more dignified and hygienic way. So this is an American moral panic, which has been you know, whipped into a frenzy on the basis of a total lie. And now you've got Catherine Burblesing who's trying to import it here in the UK. Now, I don't know if people are genuinely telling her this stuff and she just so happens to be incredibly gullible or if she's making it up because she knows that she's speaking to a media which wants all of these stories about unreasonable, you know, crazy uh, kids who are self-identifying as God knows what. But this is nonsense. It is patently nonsense. It is part of a wider project, I think, to discredit and to delegitimize uh, trans and non-binary young people. There is an ongoing debate about to what extent should uh, children's gender identities be affirmed within a school context? Should parents be informed or not? Now, we've discussed this on the show. I think that it's important to allow children to form their identities and to tell their family when they're ready and not before. But that's an ongoing discussion. I think that people can have a variety of perspectives on it and it's legitimate. You have that debate. But what this is trying to do is take a sledgehammer to that entire debate by turning it into something absurd and ridiculous and delegitimizing the idea that children might have identities which are different from the ones that were assigned to them at birth and that as a society we've got to work out what we do about that. This is one for BBC Verify, right? I mean, look, we've got basically an Alex Jones-style conspiracy theory being printed by The Telegraph about children identifying as male holograms. Okay? I, I, I always say to people when I hear this, You're saying people identify as cats? Show me one. Have you met one of them? I never get a response, strangely enough. Ash, thanks so much for joining me this evening. Pleasure as always. Thanks so much. I'm going to go downstairs, uh, get my cat ears on and defecate into, you know, some of that weird dust that you buy for £10 a kilo. Well, as long as uh, I get to identify as a dog, I don't mind. That's fine by me. Uh, As ever, thank you so much for watching this evening. We'll be back tomorrow live from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.